Welcome to Season 6 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? Want to expand your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Today's episode features Dr. Stephen Brookfield, one of the most prolific authors in the scholarship and teaching and learning community. His work in critical thinking and discussion pedagogy in particular had a huge impact on my early teaching career and how I thought about leadership education. In addition to his contributions to the field, we thought Stephen would be a great guest because of the themes of leadership development evident across his body of work. Hello, and welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are over the moon today about our guest on the podcast and this episode. So this season, we're talking to educators and faculty developers who write and speak about teaching practices in higher education. Uh, Our guests have authored popular texts, or they might host popular podcasts. In any case, they're all really immersed in trends and best practices in education. And uh, they might be from different places in the university as well, STEM, education, psychology, business. They're all sharing teaching strategies that can be applied more broadly. And today we are joined by the one and only uh, Dr. Stephen Brookfield. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you, Dan and Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us today. We uh, have both been looking forward to this conversation. Your work uh, in continuing education has impacted our careers tremendously. And when we talked about our theme for this season and having you on, I felt like the universe was aligning everything because I was getting emails from Antioch about you speaking to, to our program there. I was getting emails from our teaching, our faculty uh center here at Temple where you were teaching there. And so I was like, okay, this would be wonderful if we could get them to come and talk on our show about teaching practices and and leadership education. And so we were so grateful when you responded, said yes, you were excited, which which made us excited. And I know it's going to thrill our listeners this season. But before we jump into kind of talking about the teaching practice, can you share like just like a couple of things that about you that maybe don't show up in your biography because your your bios are all over the place, but kind of what, what's two or three things about you that people might not read um, that yeah. are useful? Thank you. Well, one is um, my own autobiography as a student, which is one of relative mediocrity. So my whole approach to being an educator is informed by that student experience of of really not having my um, whatever talents I have, minimal, you know, though they are, not having that recognized because I was trying to survive a system where I grew up in England, where all assessment was done through uh, writing and through text and through closed book examinations. And I have always had problems with depression and anxiety. And one of the ways anxiety manifests itself for me is I can't take closed book exams. So I constantly failed exams as a a teenager and I didn't get into university. And then I I did very poorly when I finally got into a a higher ed institution. And and so, so that, is something maybe that uh, is not as as known about me because bios tend to write list your accomplishments 
Um, I mean, I think one of my accomplishments has been, in a sense, surviving schooling, still with an interest in learning. Uh, sounds a bit jaded and cynical, maybe. So anyway, we'll see. And then I guess another thing I'd say, Lauren, is that um, if I wasn't uh, an educator, I would be a musician. I, I feel like I was put on the planet to play music, but I don't have sufficient talent or luck or energy or determination to make a living from it. So I do it as a, a kind of semi-professional hobby I and mean, we make a little bit of money. Um, but that means that I'm, uh, I think I have at the center of my world an understanding that intellect and cognition have their limits and that there are parts of human experience uh, in the arts or, you know, spiritually and other dimensions, which are just as important. So I, that's a very healthy counter, I think, to living life within academe where cognition is, is, is so privileged and analysis and exposition and, and uh, sounding smart and articulate are prized so much, you know, when I'm playing music and, and I play punk rock. So whether it costs, counts as music is a, a whole other question, but, but, you know, when I'm involved in that part of my life, that's when I feel most alive actually. Um, so, so that's probably something maybe people don't know. Those are great because I don't know that I've, heard about your band like we can always put the concert dates in the show notes i know it's supposed to be about teaching but if you want to drum up some support from our our listeners um i i love that you shared i love that you share both stories too because they're important to hear um i actually was raised kind of in the opposite space so i come from a family of educators my grandmother was heavily involved in the board of education in newark new jersey one of the largest school districts um, in the state and in the country and then my other grandmother was a teacher, like kindergarten teacher, and everybody in our area went through her classroom at some point. And so education was like, no, there's no, you can't do this. There's no anxiety. It's, it's you do this. And so I like hearing that story because I run into students like me who it was centered for them and other students who can't, who don't think they can do it. And it, it intentionally, I'd heard a little bit about your story before. It made me intentionally say, so you, you can or can't, but you need to demonstrate. And it made me change my language around. Around those things. Like we got to see something. Um, so if it doesn't, you know, manifest in the test, then you've got some other assignment options where hopefully it can manifest for you. Um, the other thing is Dan and I both love music. So if you need some bandmates, I don't have a specific instrument. I'm going to revisit the piano. I learned how to play the piano like 20 years ago. Going to revisit it. If you want to recruit from us, we're here for it. Okay. Absolutely. Right, Dan? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm checking out the, uh, the 99ers, uh, website right here. Um, the 99ers band.com. And yeah, I, I've been playing piano since I was, uh, gosh, six or seven. Um, mostly it was in jazz bands, big bands, that type of thing. Still taking lessons kind of here and there, but gosh, I was such a big part of, of my growing up and, and minored in music. And, um, I, I really miss being in a band. So I'm a little envious of you, Stephen, that you still get a chance to, to do that with, with your group here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great part of my life. That's awesome. So, well, let's see. So 
So Lauren and I, you know, we talked about this a little bit before we hit the record button, you know, so we, you know, we identify Lauren and I as leadership educators, you know, uh, we facilitate leadership learning on our college campuses. Uh, we just both happen to be in faculty roles. Uh, Lauren actually was in a student affairs role before her faculty role. So she brings in uh, that wealth of experience too, you know, and that's again, our primary audience for this podcast. What I want to know is, um, so much of your work has themes that, you know, either they point to, or in some cases, like explicitly connect the role of the educator and or the learner with that of a leader, or more specifically, the role of the educator as like a role model and how they teach and facilitate learning. And this shows up perhaps more often in leadership education than in other disciplines. And I'm curious, like, what are some of your thoughts about how educators and learners hold these roles of leaders and followers? Like, how does it show up in learning environments? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think of the process of, of leadership, first of all, when I think of leading and a leader, I tend to think or try not to think of an individual, although we've all been socialized into that model of the charismatic, powerful leader who, who inspires a movement. But I tend in, instead to think of a process of intentional change. So leading and change agency are very, um, uh, uh, what's the word? They're, they're almost synonyms for me uh, because I, I think of leadership as a, a deliberate intent to change an institution or a community or a part of an institutional community in a particular direction. And that happens sometimes through positional authority modeling the things that you want them to model. But oftentimes it comes from putting people in touch with each other, building alliances and networks. So someone who simply convenes a conversation, they don't have to run it, but they just get people together in a coffee shop or in a Zoom space at the same time to talk about a matter of common concern. To me, that's, that's an act of leadership. It's in support of intentional, purposeful change that a group has committed to. So, so that's kind of my starting point. And, and, and then when I think of uh, the role of an instructor um, or, or a teacher or a college professor, you know, however you, you think of yourself, um, I do think that, uh, as you said, Dan, there is the possibility for you to be a model of what self-critical reflective orientation to practice looks like. So you can disclose your own thinking. Um, you can seek anonymous commentary on, on your own practices from students and then debrief that with them. Um, and then you can model an openness to dissenting views and different perspectives and an acknowledgement that you might have missed something really, really important because you're just one, one person who happens to be in a temporary position of institutional authority. So I, I do think also there is a role in teaching for consciously modeling leadership um, capacities. But equally, if I can get a, stu a group of students, I've done this a few times in my career, I get a sense that they have a shared issue in common. And then I give them some uh, a, a contact person or an informal channel by which they can get in touch with each other 
or I offer to act as a, an informal advisor as they're preparing a petition to a dean or whomever. I mean, I think that's uh, also purposeful leadership, although I'm not really teaching leaderly content, but I think I'm working with students in a leaderly way. And again, it, it comes back to this notion of leadership as a collective intentional effort towards purposeful change and whatever role you play in enabling that process, uh, that, that process to happen is a, a leadership role in my way of thinking. So I wrote a book called Leading as a Way of Le Learning as a Way of Leading with Stephen Preskill. I don't know if you want to get into that later, but that basically was the message of, um, of that book, that social movement leaders, although we certainly profile some very charismatic individuals um, who are associated with particular movements, uh, we, we wanted to emphasize really that it's a grassroots inter intentional purposeful change process. And so the leaders that we profiled helped that collective force um, galvanize itself. And, and, and that's the kind of leadership that, uh, that I'm most interested in. I think it comes from my early first job I had really full-time job was as, a, as in charge of a community development, uh, environmental and community development uh, department at an adult ed center in England. And, and so that's sort of framed how I, I see leadership. And I, um, another thing maybe people don't know about me very much is that I swore I would not go into academe because I saw academe as a refuge for you know, um, I don't know, intellectual posturing or retreating from the world. And um, it was only because the department I was running, I was just talking about, was closed down that I needed a job to, temporarily. And I ended up with a temporary position in academe and, um, and actually found that it was there was more opportunity for me to work there in ways that I liked. Um, than I had previously imagined. So I'm wondering if you're familiar with Joseph Bowie's work, spelled B-E-U-Y-S. He curated Spaces for Dialogue. I was turned on to his art like just before my sabbatical. I believe I was at the Smithsonian Museum of Modern Art in D.C., and there was an exhibition of these blackboards that he'd used, titling one of them something like, like Living Reminiscences of Blueprints for Further Action, where he would capture combinations of words and images and diagrams from this, like, these pro-environment meetings in Europe in the 70s. He captured also this idea of what he called social sculpture, which uh, Bowie's developed uh, in the 70s during that time. It centered on the belief that art could include like the entire process of living, like thoughts and actions and conversations and objects, and therefore that could be enacted by like a wide range of people beyond artists. So like conversation in, in the classroom or dialogue. Anyway, um, what he captured you know, chalkboard was, this was art. This was something that was constructed by, by human beings. And this, we've captured this, this dialogue. And so I've always, as someone who was, you know, as a musician and, and that's just kind of like deep in my bones too, I always think about 
like the space that we curate as educators and as facilitators is is so powerful and getting folks together to dialogue towards a common purpose. You know, that change that, that you mentioned, like it could be the change is leadership development. We're trying to move the needle with the students or it's learning a new concept. It could be making connections between content and experiences that students have had, which is such a big part of leadership development, this like inextricable link between reflection and leadership learning sewn into our, um, you know, into the Afghan of what we do here. Where I'm going with that is so curious if you're familiar with, so Lee Shulman, his work on signature pedagogies. Okay, perfect. Um, so I was enthralled with this as a PhD student, um, as a, when it was presented to me by, by my faculty there. And I set out to explore for my dissertation topic, like what might be a signature pedagogy for undergraduate leadership education? Uh, mm-hmm. Turns out it's discussion in all its forms. Uh, Predominantly, it was discussion. And then it was kind of like, you know, a shared lecture and discussion and then small group discussion, you know, did kind of like a frequency analysis. And I won't get into the, I won't bore you with the design of the, of this work from, uh, you know, a dozen years ago, but in writing up the discussion and conclusion sections, I devoured both uh, Patricia Cross's work and then your work with Stephen Presco discussion as a way of teaching the tools and techniques for democratic classrooms. So I guess my, my question is, are you surprised by that finding that discussion is the signature pedagogy for leadership education? And maybe how might we make this better in a leadership classroom? And perhaps like, what are some techniques for facilitating good discussion when reflection and sharing students' experiences is like a key approach for leadership learning. Well, I'm not surprised that you would come to that conclusion. Um, And it parallels what for me is a a model that I'm trying to take from one context and drop down in another where it doesn't really fit. So so for me, the the, uh, ideal leadership um, educational leadership development education um, model is the Highlander Folk School in um, Tennessee that Miles Horton is often associated uh, with as the founder, but there were a lot of other people involved, especially a lot of other women who, who um, made that work successfully. But the Highlander Folk School was originally conceived as a place where activists who were struggling in their own communities, trying to enact change of some kind, would come together uh, at, in, in one location uh, in Tennessee, and they would hold workshops, but the workshops were just conversations where they would share their experiences of how they negotiated a particular problematic dynamic around, uh, say, voter registration, or uh, union organizing, or working out who, who was controlling the land in Appalachia, or those kinds of things. So to me, that model of people who are involved in leadership coming together to exchange experiences uh, and collaboratively to find way, new ways, hopefully, through a shared dynamic, you know, dealing with the threat posed by authorities of, let's say, constantly trying to close your initiative down. How do we deal with that? Or how do we galvanize people who are uninterested in uh, getting registered to vote uh, by helping them realize that actually it is in their own best interest to do that? 
and that there is um, maybe they have a mistrust of officialdom and welfare, um, but that there are ways that are engaged of, of, of engaging with officialdom that can actually work to your interest. So, you know, you have a difficult dynamic. You're trying to uh, come up with responses to it. And instead of having a consultant brought in to say, here's how you do A and B and run a workshop, what Highlander did was just pose a couple of questions and then let people exchange stories, a strong emphasis on narrative um, and, and autobiographical storytelling, which, of course, as we know, is a major tenet in critical race theories um, approach to, to supporting and initiating change. So I felt that that conversational model that Highlander used for me was the exemplar of generally, I think, how a good adult education environment, uh, you know, what, what that looks like, how it's created and maintained and nurtured. Um, but specifically, when you're dealing with leadership, it's a great model for leadership development um, because it allows you to have different levels of experience. Um, so you can have, you know, experienced people in, in, a, in a conversation who've had 20 years dealing with the dynamic, and you can have someone who has only three months into a new job coming up against the same problem. Um, but they come at, come at it from different experiences and, and different contexts. And so just because someone has had X number of years doesn't necessarily mean that their analysis is by definition going to be more insightful. They may have had 20 years of dealing with the problem with an analysis that was acquired in the first year. And, and so experience alone doesn't bring wisdom uh, or, or insight with it. So, so I, yeah, I think that conversational model is the one that I would gravitate to, but I would, as, as you probably know, um, I, I, I believe that conversations, discussion groups can be extremely manipulative and can reproduce all kinds of power imbalances and can be guided and coerced towards a predefined conclusion uh, can be dominated by the naturally extrovert, those who command the host language, those who are most used to hearing their voice in the open air. Um, so if you're going to use a discussion-based approach for leadership development, I think you have to, to create discussion protocols and formats that deliberately equalize participation and that stop um, a majority consensus forming too early, and that includes silence as a very important part of the dynamic. So it's not speech all the time. Or, you know, I like to do drawing discussion exercises or to use a, the chalkboard that you, you were mentioning earlier, the, the UN example, where I write a question in the middle of the board and people just come up and they respond in images with some words, but in silence for 10 minutes. And then you end up with a community dialogue captured on the board. So I, I think that you can't assume, as I probably used to assume, that discussion has its own internal mystery and chemistry, and it'll just ignite 
it, it won't, or, or it'll ignite in a way that's shutting someone down and closing off avenues of analysis. So when I'm saying, you know, you really do need discussion as a, the signature pedagogy for leadership development education, I, I, do, I say that with a qualification, that if you're going to use it, um, one of your responsibilities is to let people know that you're creating formats and designing protocols from a leadership perspective where you're trying to equalize participation and open up multimodal possibilities or framings of what a discussion um, looks like. So, the, you know, the just book you mentioned, Discussion as Way of Teaching, and then uh, Preskill and I did another book called The Discussion Book, which is just 50 of our most favorite techniques. Um, those are all premised on that notion that dis designing discussion is actually a very intentional thing and that relying on the chemistry of combustion is, uh, is a mistake. It can happen sometimes, but, but it's a dangerous way, I think, to, to uh, approach discussion with that sole orientation. It's it's so interesting that you share some of these ways because many of us, you know, that teach think back to how we were taught and how our classrooms were run and some of like this, the silence and, um, you know, the drawing responses are so just so different, you know, and I hear colleagues sometimes like, you know, buck those systems like, you know, well, I learned this way or kind of the, the balance between like expertise and your or knowledge in your area versus the adjustment you have to make because in K through 12, how students are learning is changing. And yeah. so it's, it's great to have those ideas so that you can figure out what works in your class. Um, I know when I first started teaching, I used to talk like the whole time because I felt this pressure. Like if I didn't talk, then my students wouldn't learn. And, and now I ask them questions and they're kind of surprised by it. And, and in the beginning part of the semester, it's more, you know, giving me what they think I want to hear. Right. And when I push back and question and challenge it, it's really about, you know, this mixture of, you know, I'm giving you things to read, but I really want to hear your opinion on those readings and how you're processing or not process, like, are there places where you're struggling? And so it's hard at first, especially when you, you say, you know, you can say all these things, I'm doing this for this, but, but they're so conditioned and cultured from other spaces, not yeah. to really to accept that, you know? And so it's good to hear the, those strategies, especially around the increased um, anxiety, especially undergraduate students just having increased anxiety. But also, it, it's a challenge sometimes to get that that structure in place. Yeah. Um, you know, it is most definitely because of that socialization process. And I appreciate the fact, Lauren, that you raise this feeling that if you're not talking, you're not really teaching. Because I have that so strongly within me, and so I'm 73 now, and I have not lost that. <laughs> um, and and even though you'd think I'm, I might be familiar um, enough uh, and comfortable enough with silence, because uh, I use a lot of silence, I'll, I'll often have a rule that before we talk, we reflect for two or three minutes on the question and nobody says anything and it's named as silent reflection time. So I do all that stuff, but still, I feel that if I'm not talking, a little part of me says I'm not earning my money, I'm not doing my job. 
So it's such a powerful value that we're socialized into. And I think it also reflects a kind of wider societal admiration for people who can talk extemporaneously and appear articulate. We assume that if they have a greater vocabulary and a command of language, that that connotates uh, a higher level of intelligence and gives them the right to make decisions for others who don't have that ability ability developed to the same degree. So yeah, I I very much resonate with with what you say uh, on that, Lauren. You, something I struggle with. You you know what got me out of that? I took a, a David Gublar. He used to be a town. He's a temple for a year, but he's based at Iowa, and he wrote a book. And I think it's like what the syllabus missed, or and it talks a little bit about in prepping teachers, kind of the things that are fall through the cracks. And so I took his class, and one of the things he said is, "My goal is to only talk thirty percent of the time." And mm. when he said that, I was like, "No, me? Oh, like I spent thirty percent on announcements, you know?" <laughs> but it's been this this very intentional you know sit in silence wait for students to process or say I'll give you a minute or two to think about that don't feel like you have to rush into a response and I found that just that little bit of space is super helpful still uncomfortable like you said but that became more of my target whether I'm reaching it or not I don't know but I, I think about that when I'm preparing my classes so that again I'm really hearing their voice and what they're learning and I've also been conscious about how I've created a space for everybody. Like I learn my students' names so I can call and I say, I call you out lovingly. Like, I just, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Right. So it's not, I don't want this memorized statement. I want to hear your thoughts in response to this. If you don't have it, all right, I'm going to come back to you. Let me go here. And right. so those things, I feel like I'm hoping they feel like I'm being inclusive and not targeting, mm. but I really, I, you know, you gotta, you gotta say something so, yeah. so I can see where you are. Well, I think that's why in the Learning as a Way of Leading book, we um, highlighted Ella Baker and Septima Clark as models uh, who exercise leadership um, uh, uh, sort of more from the back or from the sides rather than from the front, um, where Dr. King was the established figurehead the charismatic orator, but Ella Baker and Septima Clark were just as crucial because they were, they were building organizations. You could argue that that was way, way more crucial actually building grassroots organizations. And one of their responsibilities was to draw people out, to, to bring their experience into a discussion and to do what, what you were saying, Lauren, which is say, well, so-and-so, you, I know, you've got a lot of experience in this. Uh, is there anything that you think it would be good for us to know? Or what's what's the thing that stays in your head uh, as the most significant part of, of trying to do A, B, C, or D? So you find ways based on your knowledge of the participants to bring them into the conversation. And that's, again, a, an incredible act of leadership. You're not directing from the front, but you're widening the conversation to bring in different sets of experience and different talents and abilities and, and so forth. So, um, so yeah, that's uh, uh, that's a good example. I love that, and and thinking about 
we've been in some interesting kind of epistemological debates about, okay, so if discussion is how we teach leadership, but are we actually like doing it effectively? Or are we just talking a lot? Cause talking is easy from a, um, it's, it's almost as easy as standing up there and lecturing. Um, and so, but what is the actual, like you said, the, the process of facilitating a discussion? What's your, what's your learning goal? What are you trying to get through, get to through the process of, of facilitating a discussion in, in any type of, of, of an educational setting, but in leadership in particular, I was chatting with a colleague recently who was talking about how they've implemented discussion rubrics for live discussion in their classrooms to give mm-hmm. their students a better sense of here's what I'm actually looking for when we engage in this dialogue is, you know, are you just sharing an experience that you had, or are you sharing an experience and connecting it to course content? Are you sharing an experience and are you just talking over different people? How well are you listening and engaging? And, you know, and, and it really, it's something I'd love to pilot in a class in the near future and uh, see if I can get a copy of, of that. Have you, have you come across any of that type of resources or, or seen that approach utilized to, to see discussion yeah. actually kind of go up to that, that higher mark? Yeah, I, I use it myself. So in, okay. in the discussion book, we, we present a rubric for participation that we use uh, with students. And it's also on my homepage. We should definitely give a shout out that stephenbrookfield.com, which is my website, it's my name, all one word with a P-H-E-N, Stephen, P-H-E-N, brookfield.com. Uh, I put a lot of my uh activities and exercises up for free download so if you click on the resources link uh, on my homepage, um there's a lots of powerpoints and pdf files but right at the bottom of of the page that is the resources link i think is a uh, a grading for participation uh, rubric which is basically designed to identify the discussion behaviors for students that I'm looking for as evidence of good participation. So I publish that in the syllabus. I kind of elaborate on it at the beginning of the uh, of the course. And the behaviors are all of the, of the sort that you, you mentioned, Dan. So um, there is no behavior in there that says good participation is talking a lot or showing us how much you know. And I think that's usually how students interpret I'm being graded for participation. Okay, I better say something and I better sound smart. But so the behaviors we have are things like um, ask a question that draws another person out or make a connection um, between what two people have previously uh, said or express appreciation for the way that an example someone gave um, enhanced your understanding um, or call for a minute silence because we need a necessary reflective interlude or bring in a resource that's helpful to us all that's not mentioned in the syllabus. So um, so yeah, I do use that rubric and, and I use it because students have said it's it's helpful to see how you'll define good participation since we're being assessed for participation i mean a basic principle is right of assessment you need to know what criteria you're being your performance is being judged against so so these are all out and, and public and i've um i've i've found that 
to be helpful. So yes, I do use that myself in my own teaching. And it's it's interesting because I think in my kind of intellectual or, or educational formation, I have a real, real mistrust of metrics and rubrics and lists of best practices. I my an instinctive approach from a critical theory point of view is to see all this stuff as a, an effort of institutional control. But from a student's viewpoint, I have to acknowledge that students say, the clearer you are about your criteria and the more descriptive you are in giving us operational indicators of what these general criteria or standards look like, you know, the more you do that, the more it's helpful to us. So, so I've had to uh, do 180 degree uh, on, on that. And situationally, I think rubrics are can be really, really helpful to students. I mean, I think that all of leadership, this is a kind of broader epistemological question, really, but all of leadership, all of education is so contextually grounded, so contextually based, that one of the overarching meta So, so, you know, one of the ontological understandings is that context is everything and that there is, you know, I think experience and instincts are good guides as you move into a, a new situation. But even if the new situation or problem <clears throat> looks exactly like something you did, dealt with last term or last year, there's going to be something about it that's contextually unique and idiosyncratic. So context changes everything. And then the other thing that I, if there's one piece of wisdom um, that I'd pass on, maybe wisdom is too kind of pretentious a word, but, but I do understand that I have a lot less control over what goes on in terms of my staff that I am supervising uh, or the students in a classroom where I'm teaching a course or in a professional de development or training institute that I'm running, you know, that I used to think that I had a significant measure of control. And now I realize there is so much stuff going on that's contextually specific that I know nothing about, that I have no influence over, that, um, you know, I, I sh shouldn't judge if something goes well, it's because of what I've done. But equally, if something goes badly, I shouldn't automatically assume it's because of what I've done. There's contextual things going on out there that I may have no knowledge or awareness of that um, are, are framing the way that people respond. And I think once you have that understanding that it's not all about you and that you don't determine the success or failure of everything, um, it, it, it's a realization that that sort of take some of the self-imposed guilt that we, um, we place on ourselves out of our desire to do good work and be good professionals and good educators. Uh, you know, sometimes that, that, that slips over into assuming that you can orchestrate everything within your purview and, you know, you, you can plan and design protocols and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, I, I don't think it'll ever work out the way you think it will. Um, sometimes it works out better, you know, it's not always a disaster.
So that awareness of the lack of control is, is, is important. And I think it's something that it's hard to teach in a leadership development program to first year uh, students or in an undergraduate leadership program because you only get to that realization with some degree of experience. Um, so for me, that's actually a very interesting dynamic in leadership education, which is that um, by definition, the more experience you have, the more kind of stuff you've got to work with, in a sense, the easier it becomes. So if you're going to a leadership institute for the first time because you've you've suddenly learned you've been promoted to be head of student services or you're uh you know being asked to be a dean or department chair for the first time there's a lot of department chair workshops institutes around that kind of thing you know it's 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 hard to teach that in the absence of experience and so i think the only way you can address this is by focusing on experiences of followership uh, because everyone has experiences of being directed and of being asked to get behind an initiative or subscribe to some change that the institution feels is desirable. Um, so I will often start from a point from a point of, well, what galvanizes your commitment? What is it that someone does that makes you feel this is worthwhile and important, and I'm going to give my time to it. Let's start from that. Or let's start from the incredible number of times when you've been asked to do something and you've immediately had a cynical response saying, oh, this is just window dressing. Um, so if you as a faculty member have been told your opinion counts and you've been in faculty meetings, where, which I have been, where the faculty have been brainstorming directions, future directions for the university or college, and you send those directions through to the task force doing the strategic planning for the future. But a part of you or part of me is convinced that what we say will probably be completely disregarded unless it fits with the priorities that the trustees have already set behind the scenes. So I'll ask people, you know, in a situation like that where you're convinced that, you know, there is no point to this, what would it take to move you to a position of commitment? What is it that the person in charge of the operation is doing? What is it about the way this effort has been designed and how you've been included in it? Um, it you know, it would work for you. So, um, so I, that's how I try, and don't know if you, this will get in the podcast or if it's interesting at all, but that's how I address this position of, well, new leaders don't have experience in the past of leadership that they can draw on, but they've got a lot of experiences of, of followership, yeah. if you want to use that word. I couldn't agree more. You dropped so many great nuggets in the last five minutes or, or, or so. And on one hand, the... Uh, the resources around discussion, because uh, as we mentioned before, it's used so widely in leadership education and we're working on, and it could be used both in the face-to-face -face and the online spaces because of how the, yeah. the discussion is, is assessed. But your point about um, both leader and follower experiences being sources of learning, like w w that's something that is like rising up into our literature, into our conversations at conferences right now at, at, a, at an extreme level, because uh, in fact, there was um, 
I co-authored a book a few years ago with a faculty member at at Florida State University, Kathy Guthrie, we proposed this model that's based on Kolb's model of experiential learning. We call the mm -hmm. model a model of leader and follower experiences as a source of transformational learning. And the point being that experiences that you have in a leader or a follower role are sources of learning of which to go through that you know, that experiential learning uh, loop of reflecting on that experience of a, being a leader or a follower, doing some experiential abstraction, and then trying out some of those new behaviors. So that, yes, and your point about context, um, there's a scholar in our field that I'm, you may or may not be familiar with, but our listeners will know her, Barbara Kellerman. She writes a lot about the leadership system. She says, I don't use the word leadership anymore. I talk about it as a system, which in the system is leaders, followers, context. So exactly what, what you were what you were proposing. This is just, it's kind of music to my ears to kind of hear it from your perspective, from your, your work in, in, in authoring these types of, of books and resources and, and just college teaching generally, making that jump to, to kind of seeing that similarly in the way that we're seeing this. And, and followership has been so integrated um, in, into our uh, dialogue, member communities, lots of books coming out in the last five to seven years in particular around followership. Um, yeah. Just fascinating. All right, there's one. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this question because your your work on critical thinking was really really had a big impact on on my work early on when I first started teaching um, at the college level. I started teaching state and local government and American government at community college in about 2007. My master's was in in poli sci, and you know you. You know, again, I mentioned Jim Eisen was my was my major professor, and he he worked his work early work was on active learning and kind of coining that term. He introduced yeah. me to to your work and that and and critical thinking kind of in tandem. And I started to use your book on on critical thinking here. I've got well, and I have learning of a way of leading here on my shelf too that I grab. But you're teaching for critical thinking text, the tools and techniques to help students question their assumptions. That was so important to how I addressed teaching government because I didn't want, I wanted to address it objectively and not be on either side of the fence and really give students an opportunity to think for themselves and to think really critically about the way that they were approaching things. That worked really well. And then I got the opportunity a year later to teach an intro to leadership class. And what we, we took some ideas from that from some of your work, and you had written a uh, chapter in Thomas Wren's book, The Leader's Companion, a short chapter called What It Means to Think Critically. So it was all of this that we took together, and, and we I'm talking about a teaching assistant I worked with at the time, and we created an assignment where we said, okay, you know, students in this intro to leadership class, you've got, you're going to write this paper, you're going to write, what does it mean? Well, they're going to read that chapter, and I think we had one other resource that they would read but the assignment uh, was, what does it mean to read critically, to think critically, and then to lead critically? And that was the kind of reach that we wanted them to, to go out there and try to grab. And they, they loved that assignment. They would always come back and say, that was one of the most powerful assignments that, that we had. And I'm curious from your perspective, like what are some of the ways, I mean, I think that's a great strategy, but I'm extremely biased, but you know, what are some ways you think leadership educators, developers, like they might integrate strategies to teach their students critical thinking? Like, do you have a go-to for that that might work really well in a leadership development context? Well, I, I would say firstly that, that you cannot separate the process of thinking critically and being critically reflective from the act of leadership or the process of leadership. One implies the other, it seems to me. Uh, so in, in the book, Learning as a Way of Leading, we, we do define as a, a key component of leadership is constantly reflecting on practice, learning about what you're doing, 
calibrating that, broadening your horizons, uh, looking for blind spots and omissions that, uh, you know, um, try, trying to, to discover those. So, so it seems to me that when I'm modeling, if, you, if you're trying to model leadership, you're modeling critical thinking, you're modeling critical reflection on practice. That's part of what leadership does. And it, it, it sends the message that leadership is a constant process of evolving and becoming an inquiry, and that you're not going to get to a point of saying, now I have the um, all the weapons I need in my armory of leadership and I'm done. I now go out and practice. You know, that that's an inaccurate way of of thinking about leadership. It's a constant process of learning and being critical about the assumptions that, that you bring to your own practice. And in terms of the methodology of encouraging it, this is why I think the discussion-based approach is a signature pedagogy in leadership with all the problems that I've, I've mentioned, acknowledged, um, because I think critical thinking best happens as a social learning process. And I write about this in the book. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking up conversational models and, and using them on protocols focused on the uncovering of assumptions and the deliberate attempt to capture what we have missed and to make sure that all perspectives on a problem are brought into play. So um, when I talk about discussion, again, critical thinking is central to the way I use that methodology. You know, it's very hard to become aware of your assumptions on your own. You need someone else to listen carefully to you as you describe a situation. And then they'll ask you some questions about it. And, and, and maybe then they'll start to give you different perspectives of how they've experienced the problem. Or they'll ask you a question about why you made a certain decision. And in answering the question, you suddenly realize there maybe was another way of of doing this rather than the course of action that you chose. So I think it best happens in that social learning environment. And uh, although I do think it's important to read individually and to have moments of introspective, you know, speculation and so on, and have time just to get away and think stuff through, I think the real breakthroughs happen in group settings where critical friends are bringing a new perspective to your attention, uh, asking a question which opens up a whole new way of thinking about something. Um, so, so that would always be my, my um, initial approach to critical thinking, which, which is you use discussion, use a social learning episode, but then support that with a lot of modeling uh, of your own critical reflection. So you give people a sense of, um, of what it might look like. Um, so uh, you model it for them. And then the third thing, strategically, I would say, is be aware that although you may be comfortable with this process, a lot of the people that you're working with won't understand initially what you're trying to do or will be threatened by the idea of uncovering assumptions and opening us, ourselves up to a completely different perspective. So in the Teaching for Critical Thinking book, I do emphasize the importance of scaffolding um, critical thinking. So you begin 
in a way that uh, feels relatively familiar and comfortable for students who use a lot of fictional case studies or scenarios early on. And then over time, the exercises that you use bring people closer and closer to an analysis of their own direct experiences. So let's say I'm doing a leadership development exercise on um, uh, whites becoming aware of their own racism. In the past, I might have started by saying, all right, um, here's a question. When, when did you most recently enact white supremacy? Um, and because I'm relatively comfortable answering it, not completely, but I'm used to answering it and thinking about it, I underestimate just how incendiary and threatening that question is to a lot of colleagues in a, in a professional institute. So instead, you know, after I'd spent a long time delving into the dynamics of critical thinking, I realized that a better approach is, first of all, for me to talk about how I enact white supremacy. So a lot of autobiographical disclosure, um, giving people the sense that this is just a normal process, normal in the sense of common process, um, that a, a, a lot of whites like myself um, do this in ways that we don't comprehend that we're doing it. Um, and then I would give them a case study of uh, someone in a situation that they could recognize, maybe a, a case study focusing on a teaching event or focusing on a personnel or administrative issue. And, and then I, I get them to start thinking about, well, in what ways is this person's lack of awareness of their own racial identity as white? In what way is this framing their responses to the problem? So that kind of scaffolding um, using autobiographical modeling and then using um, case studies and also using a lot of digital testimony. I love to go online and find examples of people talking about how they've experienced something and how it's challenged them. Um, you know, you, you show those things and then you're building a context and a familiarity that then allows you to move people into focusing directly on their own experiences. But in the past, I would have started there a long time ago. You know, for the past 20, 30 years, I, I have changed and I've been much more attentive to modeling, to scaffolding and to structuring the social learning um, activities uh, that we're doing. That's brilliant. And it really kind of brings us full circle to, you know, to where we started and talking about discussion and processes for doing that and, and the role of the leadership educator and, and being in that modeling position and really having to, to model the way and, and be, that, be that role model. Just, yeah, just fantastic. And, and we, we coined uh, in relation to that, this term of like leading critically. Can you lead critically yes. as yeah. much as you can think critically and read critically? And, and you've, you've captured in, in ways that probably, uh, you know, eloquently uh, that put together some just great ways to frame that approach from a facilitation standpoint. And um, I love this idea of like, you know, the social learning model and, and, and framework for, for promoting this and for, and for doing this um, well. And, and, you know, I'm 
just can't wait for our for our audience to get an opportunity to, to consume this podcast. And there's just so many takeaways for the way that we facilitate learning and the tough conversations and some of the, the critical, you know, the critical race theory, the, the critical thinking, the, the critical approaches to uh, to breaking down and, and, and reframing some of the, the major theories that we that we have in our discipline as well. So thank you for this great conversation. Uh, we could we could talk to you for for hours, um, but we want to respect your your time commitments today. And this was just a, a beautiful conversation. So grateful for your time and, and your work in the field of teaching. As I mentioned, it just was very prolific and had a huge impact on, on my development as a uh, as a scholar of teaching and learning in, in this field. So, you know, best of luck to you and I uh, hope you get some time to, to go play with the 99ers and uh, get that get, get that music part of your life that, that seems to really uh, invigorate you and, 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 and really uh, bring you up. So thank you, Stephen. Well, thank you, Dan, and thank you, Lauren, uh, for, for giving me some time to air my views, I guess. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. Remember, you can download all our episodes on all available podcast platforms. And when you go, please make sure you rate us five stars, as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. That's right, Lauren. We also invite you to interact with us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod. That's L E A D E D U C A T O R P O D. And on LinkedIn by searching for the Leadership Educator Podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn by name and on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M R S L A U R J B. That's Miss Laura J B. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And a wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies now at the University of South Carolina. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our listeners. During the season, you will hear episodes featuring International Leadership Association members working globally to drive leadership education. Visit ilaglobalnetwork.org slash podcast for more information and to join the association. And finally, this podcast would not be possible without our chief partner, the Association of Leadership Educators. Please check out the ALE and all it has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you will listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.